You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the U.S.-China Trade War podcast. I am Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post. It's the last Friday in August. The sun is out in Hong Kong and they are just today loosening the coronavirus social distancing regulations, which means that we might even get a drink at the bar tonight. But the metaphorical storm clouds persist and they are getting darker. This week, we had new sanctions from the United States on Chinese companies and officials for the militarization of the South China Sea. We saw China fire four aircraft carrier killer missiles into the South China Sea, reportedly in response to American spy planes patrolling the area. All the while the trade talks continued in the background, the only sticking plaster holding the superpower relationship together, and that is ironic. We'll have John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, on the first half of the show to discuss all the events on this side of the pond. And then, as if that isn't enough, we'll be talking to the great Owen Churchill in our US Bureau, who has been diligently glued to the Republican National Convention happening in Washington all week. What did we learn about Trump's election agenda on China? Why were Chinese dissidents speaking to the convention? Are we in for another rocky few months ahead? I think we all know the answer to that last one, but lots more to get through. Let's get on with the show. Joined as ever on this week's podcast by our political economy editors, John Carter and Joe Shin, to discuss what's been another very busy week in US-China relations. First things first, we've had new sanctions. The US government announced sanctions on Chinese entities, including the giant state-owned enterprise, the China Communications Construction Companies, CCCC, calling the move a response to Beijing's militarization of outposts in the South China Sea. We've had sanctions on Xinjiang. We've had sanctions on Hong Kong over recent weeks and months. These are coming in thick and fast. John Joshin, this is another sign of escalation and it's now sort of gone offshore. Well, you have to take these new sanctions and all of the sanctions in the context of the U.S. election. Uh, Trump is still down more than eight points in U.S. polls. Uh, he was speaking tonight at the end of the Republican National Convention trying to drum up support, but he's behind and he needs to uh, bolster his credentials. And one of his key credentials in the eyes of the American people is his get tough on China strategy. And so this plays into that. You know, we're not even just going to talk about it. We're going to actually do something. Uh, now, these latest sanctions are about the South China Sea. Uh, China claims uh, large sections of the South China Sea, even though an international tribunal several years ago said that the, their claim was not legitimate. Uh, and as part of their cementing their claim, they have built up these small island atolls into large islands and fortified them. And this has not gone unnoticed by the world community and particularly the United States. And that's what these sanctions are in, in response to. Um, this, the, um, Sanctions against quadruple C uh, could be particularly painful. Uh, it has a, uh, a subsidiary in Texas, an oil company subsidiary in Texas, uh, which ha holds some interesting patents. And it's unclear if those uh, relations with that company or access to those patents would be affected by these sanctions. Uh, in addition, 
the quadruple C owns the largest construction company in Australia, which is building the biggest construction project in the country, which is the new metro, the new subway for Sydney. This could have widespread ramifications, particularly if Australia follows up uh, against the uh, Australian construction subsidiary. Absolutely. Joe Shin, this is, um, as we said, it's the latest in a line of, of sanctioning of, of big entities. There were actually 24 Chinese state-owned firms added to the um, to this list, CCCC being, being perhaps the most notable. XPCC, the Xinjiang entity, was sanctioned a few weeks ago, and it's been described as a sprawling, um, maybe not the most transparent of organizations. Joe Shin, how much of a blow is it to China's industry and industrial economy when big, big, important companies like this are hit with um, trade and economic sanctions? Well, uh, this is uh, really uncharted waters. We have to wait and see whether these companies can survive uh, the uh, U.S. sanctions. I think for XPCC, which has very little overseas operation, might, the situation might be okay because it's mainly focused on uh, local business. But at the same time, you know, it has to uh, use like... Uh, equipments or uh, systems that involve the U.S. technology or U.S. products. So it's very interesting to see how these companies are going to survive. And basically one one uh, uh, lesson I think Beijing has learned over the past uh, past decades, you know, in terms of political, you know, Chinese state-owned enterprises can be very uh, uh, tough, can be speaking uh, very loudly against the United States. But really once... Once they are become targets of U.S. sanctions, you know what Beijing can really do, or the Chinese government can really do to help them is quite limited. Actually, I remember in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, I think the uh, Norinco sold lots of uh, arm, arm, uh, arms to uh, Iraq and Iran, and that uh, put itself uh, under U.S. sanction. And even as a company, basically hired lots of uh, expensive lo- lobbyists, and you know to solve the problem by themselves. But I, I don't think they. Uh, any Chinese state on the company will have this kind of luxury these days, given <laughs> consideration of the broader U.S.-China and China tensions. But as we can see, you know, if the U.S. really uh, becomes, you know, if it really becomes uh, determined to 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 inflict pain on a particular Chinese company, I think the U.S. has the ability to do so. Huawei is a very good example. Absolutely. It was a busy evening the the day that the um, sanctions were announced. Uh, We also had the news, the quite worrying news, that there were a couple of missiles fired, um, Chinese missiles fired into the South China Sea, um, which a military source close to the PLA told our reporter Kristen Huang were aimed at sending a clear warning to the United States. This was a day after China said a US U-2 spy plane entered a no-fly zone without permission. Joshin, how worrying is this militaristic development? Um, I mean, we've sort of alluded to this over recent weeks that the tension is mounting and, you know, a Cold War is here. Um, Are there concerns in China that there may be a hot war in the offing? Well, it's very difficult to say this thing about that, but this really is worrying. I think later the uh, uh, U.S. Defense Department has confirmed that there are actually four missiles, right? targeting the South China Sea. And apparently China has not officially confirmed that there has been, uh, but, you know, kind of, they're not denying it. So basically it's confirmed that, yes, China do fight missiles, these so-called air carrier killers, uh, into the South China Sea. I think it shows, uh, uh, you know, China is not going to be led by the U.S. in terms of agendas. As as, as uh, sanctions you just described, China is not taking a tick for tat approach anymore. 
But for the South China Sea, for the territory uh, sovereignty, China is not backing off. And China is basically showing that, you know, what we we are capable of doing. So if you keep sending your uh, warplanes to this area, you know, we have this weapon to destroy your uh, uh, um, aircraft carriers. But this is also at the same time, uh, you can see that um, after even after Beijing fired these uh, uh, missiles, you know the Chinese government is still very restrained and saying basically saying we are not targeting the uh, the, the the U.S. Uh, warplanes. We are just doing the you know this uh, this is a legal uh, test of the weapons within China's uh, boundaries within China's territory. But this, as a, as a message, I think is uh, quite clear that you know China is uh, preparing for these kinds of things. and also given consideration you know the, uh, the unprecedented uh, war exercises along China coast from all the way. Uh, north to Dalian and to south to the uh, uh, to Hainan, you know, so many uh, Chinese uh, warplanes and you know, vessels are involved in these kind of different um, uh, military exercises. And I think this is uh, quite also quite a telling. Uh, you know, China is saying, you know, please do not you know play with me on this. I, I'm 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 really preparing for that. Yeah. yeah, very worrying. The um, the one thing maybe holding things together at the moment is the trade talks. Irony is not lost on us, I think, that the one reason why Trump, or the main reason Trump attacked China on initially, trade, um, seems to be the only area for constructive dialogue at the moment. Um, since we last recorded, we had a, a telephone call between the top negotiators, Lighthizer and Mnuchin on the US side, Liu He on the Chinese side. Um, they issued some polite statements without giving too much detail as to what went on. But even these polite statements are a lot more decorous than what we're getting elsewhere in the relationship at the moment, John Carter. Yeah, no, as you pointed out, this is perhaps the only channel of communications uh, between uh, the U.S. and China now that is not uh, highly negative, highly politically charged. Uh, The negotiators seem to get along personally. They seem to be dedicated to maintaining the phase one trade deal um, and uh, seeing it through, although China remains well below the purchase targets that it agreed to in the in the deal. Um, so half a loaf is better than no loaf at all, I guess, in this case. Uh, but um, uh, it, it, it's very tenuous to have your entire to have the entire relationship between the two largest economies in the world tethered only by this one agreement. Uh, which could easily evaporate uh, at any time, either by the U.S. side or the Chinese side. Um, it's it's not healthy, and it raises yeah. the question of what's going to happen going forward. Yeah, the, the 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 Chinese side, China has been buying a lot of U.S. agricultural produce over the past few weeks, and it's nowhere near hitting the target set out in the Phase One trade deal. But it's getting closer. Um, for a story that we did this week, I ran a few numbers to look at why might Trump be sort of persisting with this trade deal. And if you look at the top five exporting states of soybeans, corn, pork these really big crops and and agricultural produce that China's buying, um, they are Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, Indiana. All but Illinois are in play in the election. Trump carried Iowa by 9.5% in 2016, and now he leads Joe Biden by just 0.7%. In Nebraska, he won by 25% in 2016, Trump did, and that's been narrowed to just 2% in the latest polls. In Minnesota, Biden has extended a a 1.5% victory for Hillary Clinton in 2016 to a 5.8% lead in Minnesota. So the motivation for Trump is clear there. If he wants to win the election, uh, he 
trailing in the polls. Um, but if he needs to, he needs to claw some of that back, and he needs to keep the farmers on side. Um, but what I'm wondering is, um, Josian, what is the motivation for China to keep this agreement alive? Is it really just an existential thing in terms of the relationship between the with the U.S. to keep that alive? Is that mainly the motivation? Yes, that's the only motivation. I think I, uh, uh, you know, for kind of uh, um, this trade deal at the very beginning, I think for China is, you know, what the U.S. trying pushing China to do this and that, and China agreed for sake of the broader uh, relationship. And for now, I think this has become more important. So that's why even the phone call itself, you know, has has significant meanings. Uh, according to Chinese media, you know, this showed, you know, China and the U.S. still has room to talk, you know, at, at least over some specific issues. So you can still sit down and have uh, a friendly, constructive conversation. And also, uh, you know, uh, although the the, the the trade talks did not uh, spread out to other uh, topics, for instance, TikTok or other things, but at least we know that there's a vice premier. Uh, Liu He, who is a trusted advisor to President Xi Jinping, is giving Beijing's information to uh, the White House, to Washington, and Washington also has a, has a channel to have their uh, concerns and uh, you know uh, anger complaints, whatever, to Beijing. So this is uh, this is important. But as for purchases of uh, uh, grains uh, for soybeans, I think China is just doing uh, depends on what what it needs. And uh, at the moment, China is in need of lots of uh, farm products for the United States. And, you know, with or without, uh, possibly with or without this trade deal, China will import as much as soybean as possible, uh, you know, the corns as well, because corn prices in China is rising uh, quite quickly. So, so yes, China will, will say, yes, we are honoring our uh, commitments in this tr- uh, phrase, phrase one deal, and we want to continue to talk with the United States and have a uh, uh, stable or or healthy broader relationship and that's uh, that's justification for the phrase one trade deal in china absolutely uh, before we 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 finish up for the day joshian i wanted to ask you about a story which has been very popular on our website this week the cypress papers piece which you you wrote um this is um I, i'll let you explain it but just really briefly um leaked documents which showed that uh, 500 chinese people mostly very wealthy obtained european union citizenship in cyprus over recent years including asia's richest woman a little bit of a, a behind the the curtain look here Josian, at how the the other half live <laughs> well this is a very interesting because uh we all know that you know chinese uh, the super rich chinese people are not uh, very uh comfortable or not very uh feeling safe about their prospects in china and this cyprus paper is just uh, shedding some lights onto this you know 500 super it's not everyone have you know two million euros to just to, to spend a, a passport, and some of them actually have uh, political exposures. They have memberships in local national people's congress or political consultative committee, which is clearly banned in any Chinese regulations. So it's very it's very interesting. But uh, at the same time, you know, some names mentioned. Algiza uh, basically mentioned eight names, and at least one of them, uh, the China Resources Power. Uh, president has yesterday has come out with the clarifications that he has never applied or obtained any Cyprus uh, citizenship or passport. So this, uh, y- you can see, this is a quite a sensitive issue in China as well because 
if how can you be a, a senior executive at a Chinese state owned enterprises and at the same time you spend two million euros to buy your uh, European passport? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the the fact that there are so many Chinese uh, willing to put down money for uh, for kind of. Uh, uh, alternative is is really is really worrying and uh, and you know what worries them is, is even more interesting like what are you afraid of you know with this number two economy in, in the world you know you're supposed to be the the greatest uh, uh, benefit beneficiaries from china's economic boom you know why you are not uh, feeling safe about your future in this country so this is uh, this is kind of uh, really interesting questions and i really hope that more people named in these by the RGZ database would come out and, uh, and 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 make their own statements to explain or to clarify. Absolutely. Um, before we finish up, John, what's on the agenda for the coming week? Uh, the big one is on Monday. It's the official uh, purchasing managers indexes for the manufacturing and the non-manufacturing sectors. Manufacturing is supposed to improve a little bit more, implying a, a, a modest increase in the pace of production. Non-manufacturing is expected to ease a little bit. Um, non-manufacturing consists of both construction and services. Construction has been very high because of the government's infrastructure building program. Services have been weak, spe- especially among small and little, uh, small and medium-sized companies who have struggled to get back into business after the pandemic. Uh, so that is the likely reason behind expectation that services and non-manufacturing will ease off in. August. But overall, they're expected to show that the Chinese recovery is continuing, is gathering pace, although there is this divergence between the well-to-do and the non, the, the less well-to-do citizens of the country. It's okay. um, a problem that uh, Beijing will have to tackle later on. Absolutely. We'll hear more about that next week. John Carter, Zhou Xin, thank you for your time today. China tariffs. I mean, China had the worst year they've had in 67 years. For 25 years, years China was taking in anywhere between 200 billion with a B and 550 billion dollars from the United States. And before the World Trade Organization and they getting into it, China was flatlined. China, China will own our country if this guy gets elected. More soybeans than we ever thought possible. And now I have farmers calling me up, sir, we love China very much. Please don't be too tough on them, please. <laughs> that was Donald Trump speaking at this week's Republican National Convention in Washington. The president made a number of appearances throughout the week, including a long and quite rambling, as I understand it, closing speech on Thursday evening Washington time. Owen Churchill has been diligently glued to his laptop all week watching this so that we don't have to. And we're going to catch up with Owen to find out what was said about China and about trade. Delighted to be joined today by Owen Churchill, who is a reporter in the South China Morning Post's US Bureau. Owen has been staying up late this week and following very closely the Republican National Convention. Uh, this evening, he's coming in hot. He's just been treated to a fireworks display uh, to signal the end of the convention. And of course, the speech, the headline speech from President Donald Trump. Owen, thanks for joining us today. What to you did this tell you about the next few months? Are we going to see a significant uh, change in Trump's agenda on China or is it going to be more of the same? 
Yeah, I think it's basically uh, business as usual when it comes to Trump's position on China and Trump's position on Biden with respect to Beijing. Basically, what, what we had with this speech, you've got to remember that this was, you know, well thought through speech. It was pretty, by and large, it was off the teleprompter. You know, it wasn't the usual ad-libbing off, off the cuff kind of affair. So this was um, a very intentional and, you know, representative of the campaign's position. And it's worth remembering that the Republican Party this year, for the first time, I think, in modern history, um, didn't issue a platform, a policy platform going into the election, um, other than to say we we completely support Trump. We're going to put all our all our weight behind him. Um, so this was a really good window into what we can expect for for November and leading up to November. But on the whole, it was you know it was it, he went hard on Biden. He went hard on Biden when it came to trade, um, jobs, manufacturing, even on the coronavirus. He said. You know, he he took no responsibility for that, and he said that he was he would be the only candidate who would hold China accountable. Um, but it was really a kind of attempt to put the full gamut of U.S. grievances against China um, on Biden's shoulders, who, as we all know, has been in politics for a very long time, but hasn't been president ever. Hasn't been president for the past four years. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, everything from trade, jobs, manufacturing. And there was, you know, there was, there was a whole range of, I would say, probably fair comments. Um, he, he mentioned Biden's support for China's accession to the WTO at one point, um, all the way through to exa- exaggerations, to half-baked truths, and to a couple of outright lies. No, we sounds like, full, yeah, uh, sounds like the regular a regular journey into Trump land. That one. How much of a prom, how how prominent was the China stuff? I mean, I I didn't watch it. I heard it was very long. We've been following updates on Twitter. Saw the fireworks, of course. Um, did he be was he dropping in the China stuff throughout the speech and uh, maybe as a general comment over the course of the week? Or and have there been like dedicated sections to China throughout this, or is it just generally that China is a percolating theme through the rest of it? It's been a really prominent theme, especially compared to the Democrats' convention last week. That was something that they got quite a lot of heat from, from the Republican side. Um, it was mentioned, I think, once in Biden's speech last last week, his closing speech, when he accepted his nomination. He said that he was, he was pledging to bring back um, the manufacturing of medical equipment and medical supplies from China to the U.S., when it came to the Republicans' convention this week, as we expected, there was a lot of programming about China, um, trying to pin the blame on China completely for the coronavirus, talking about trade, the phase one deal, really really trumpeting that side of things. Um, and then in Trump's speech today, it was of, of the hour, there was maybe a, a few minutes on China. Um, but, you know, foreign policy in general, it's not a prominent theme. It's not mm. going to be a deciding theme on the whole for voters across the U.S., but yeah. he gave a good chunk of time to that. And then there was, of course, references to, quote, unquote, the China virus <laughs> throughout the speech, which we all know is, um, you know, a lot of people um, say that has fueled anti-Asian racism in the yeah. US, but he didn't hold back from that. 
Totally. The um, did you hear anything new? Um, I mean, there, I was reading this week the uh, the Trump agenda for twenty twenty, and there's a section on China, and I know that he mentioned in the speech that he's going to um, cut tax credits for companies that bring jobs back, and also ban from federal contacts contracts companies that outsource stuff from China. That's fairly new. Uh, was that a focus of the speech? Uh, what what else are we hearing? That was mentioned, and I would say that that is probably the most substantive and specific component of what he said on China tonight. There were there were other parts. He talked about, um, you know, re- reshoring, bringing, bringing manufacturing back out of China. Um, he said at one point that Joe Biden's agenda was made in China. My agenda is made in the USA, um, which is a stretch in both senses because, well, and partly because, um, you know, we know that companies are by and large, they're companies that are leaving China are either nearshoring or they're going to places like Vietnam where they can produce um, goods for you know more cheaply. And then at the same time, Biden has has came out with his democratic platform recently that had a, you know quite an extensive section on China hmm. um, and really went into specifics about trying to rally together an international alliance hmm. of countries to push China to uphold and to abide by international norms when it comes to trade. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I, I was writing about this myself yesterday and I, I, I was doing a quick control F on the two two agenda, policy agendas, the platforms, the, the Biden supply chain platform and then the, the Trump general agenda. Trump mentioned China six times, whereas Biden mentioned it 10 times. So, I mean, this is, I guess, showing the clear direction in which the wind is blowing in, in Washington. But and, and I wonder what your sense is, Owen, if Biden was to to win, yes, he maybe didn't go as hard on China in his speech, but he's going to be under pressure to maintain that uh, that pressure on China into the new year. Absolutely, you, you know, we always talk about this consensus around China that has grown really rapid. Well, not rapidly, but it's over the past couple of years, it's really come to the forefront in within you know within the Beltway in Washington. Um, that's not going to go away. People I've spoken to on the Hill are pretty adamant that there is going to be support for a, you know for a very um a hardline approach to beijing basically on everything but i think that's something we will probably see more of if biden did win in november um i don't think there's a lot of space for him to to back down on trade necessarily um although he's you know he's talked about the 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 damage that tariffs have done for um you know for, for consumers and for companies in in the US um, but as as his platform laid out he wants to try and kind of rally together um, allies and use the international community more effectively mm-hmm. um, but I think beyond trade you're going to see a lot more um, movement on matters around human rights um, and that's something that Trump himself doesn't speak to all that often although his administration has taken steps to um, sanction Chinese officials Chinese entities over things like um, Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Um, but I think that, that, that Biden realizes he has taken a lot of flack um, uh, because of his role in the Obama administration, you know, that, hmm. and, and dissidents who I speak to who are not necessarily pro-Trump, they, they acknowledge that there was this sense of um, human rights being somewhat sidelined in the previous administration not necessarily to the to the degree of appeasement, but that they didn't take as central a position as they should have. 
Mm. And I think we're seeing um, Joe Biden become more and more vocal about things like Xinjiang. He called it, he he called it a genocide. Yeah. Um, you know, recently, and that's that's language that we haven't seen even from Pompeo. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a real. I think a, a Rubicon moment there to be calling it a, a genocide. The you don't see that from any international many international leaders, let alone the you know prospective leader of the United States. Um, one of the highlights from this end, anyway, during the week was to see um, the exiled human rights activist uh, Chung Guang Chung um, take the platform at the RNC. Uh, you did a nice little story on this the other day, Owen. Um, Tell us a bit of background about Chun. What was he doing there? What was he saying? And what was the backlash to, to this, um, you know, in this part of the world, very well-known uh, Chinese figure taking the stage at the RNC in America? Yeah, so for those who, who aren't too familiar with his story, he came to the US in 2012 um, after being um, persecuted on and off by authorities for, for, for many years back in China. He was a self-trained legal activist um, and he, he ended up in house arrest and managed to escape to the U.S. embassy. And ultimately, the, the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, was quite involved. Um, Gary Locke, the U.S. ambassador to China, they, they facilitated his, um, his release from China to the U.S., where he's lived ever since. Um, and, and since then, he has become more, more and more associated with the right when it comes to um, the US political spectrum. Um, I spoke to him um, over a year and a half ago when I was working on some reporting about support for Trump within the dissident community. And his, his position is very representative of, um, you know, quite a surprisingly large contingent of that community that say Trump, yes, he doesn't speak to human rights in particular, um, and yes, he has praised Xi Jinping numerous times and, and called him a friend and so on, but he's the only president who has who appears to um, to not back down when it comes to confronting Beijing. And they think that even through things like economic pain, he could ultimately um, you know, cause the, the Communist Party in China to, to kind of lose its grip on power. Mm. Um, and... Chen Guangcheng, his his appearance at the convention, it rocked a lot of boats over here in the US because um, you know, there are there are people in the dissident community who think that there are just there's too much inconsistency when it comes to the political right and, and particularly Trump's strain of politics and what human rights advocates are fighting for. And I spoke to um, his former lawyer, Tung Biao, who is also an exiled um lawyer here in the US. He represented Chen when he was back in China. And he was really saddened by the whole thing. He, he, there's a perception, I think, a lot amongst a lot of activists that Chen has been kind of co-opted somewhat by the political right. And I'm sure that he and his allies would dispute that. Um, sadly, he didn't want to talk to me about that this week. Mm. Um, but there is a perception that he has been somewhat um, co-opted and, and used almost as like a you know, a shield for Trump and Trump's allies to say, no, we do care about human rights. Look mm. who we've brought to the convention. Here's our Chinese activists who, yeah, we're exactly. putting on the platform. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Trump, yeah. Trump himself, he tweeted a video of Chan speaking soon after he took to the stage. 
Yeah. And we, I mean, it's interesting to see some of these figures pop up in, in US politics. Say we had Guan Gui, of course. Uh, uh, Steve Bannon, was it, was he arrested on his yacht? I mean, it, it does seem yeah. quite weird to see these two worlds colliding now. Yeah. Everyone talks about it as like the weirdest, the weirdest of bedfellows. And yeah. it's just a very kind of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, it's a very 2020 moment, you know, when it came to Bannon being arrested by postal agents on, Goran Gray's super yacht, you know, (laughs) yeah, just so many stories colliding together there. Totally, Um, totally. Yeah, it's. I think it's you know, and and it's um, a matter of converging, converging objectives. Um, There are things that I think both sides have to kind of compartmentalize and and brush brush aside when it comes to these kinds of alliances. Very much the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, and Owen, I wanted to ask you about the, the coming months um, election season is in the US, but as a reporter, it must be a bit frustrating to to sort of have to cover this, um, not as maybe firsthand as you'd like. I mean, obviously the restrictions are in place. Um, things aren't going to be motoring as usual, but, but have you got a busy agenda, a busy schedule reporting on this over the coming months? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. Obviously, this is the first time for for everybody covering an election where it's all almost exclusively remote. It's given people who are involved in the election, people who are running for office, you know, both at the presidential and at the local level. You know, they're not speaking face to face with voters, but they're they're almost you know they're reaching even more intimately into their lives because it's more of like a you know everyone talks about it being more of like a one to one conversation. And so it's actually I I think it was. In a way, the conventions this year, um, there was, a, you know, it was it was more um, possible to focus on the substance of what people were saying. Um, I think that people are going to realise that they need to really um, be pushing for sharp agendas and and really talking to the issues. You can't rely, you know, unless you're Trump and you have the White House South Lawn as your venue. <laughs> yes. You know, there's not a lot of showboating that you can do. You can't whip up you know, huge crowds. And, and so that's quite refreshing as a reporter, but um, certainly it's, it's frustrating doing this from, um, you know, from the, from the living room every day in, day out. <laughs> yeah. We all, we, we all empathize with that one, Owen, but, yeah. um, but look, great to have you on the podcast. We look forward to reading what you're reporting on over the, the next weeks and months and uh, take care over that side of the pond. Cheers. Finba. Thanks for listening to this week's US-China Trade War podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the SCMP's Political Economy Desk. You can follow us on Twitter at SCMP Economy. I'm at F Birmingham. That's Birmingham with a B-E-R, not like the city. We'll be back same place next week. Until then, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, and stay safe and healthy. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.